Our second Bible reading is uh, taken from uh, the third chapter of Galatians, reading from verse 1 to 14. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by observing the law or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish? After beginning with the Spirit, are you now trying to attain your goal by human efforts? Have you suffered so much for nothing, if it really was for nothing? Does God give you his Spirit and work miracles among you because you observe the law or because you believe what you heard? Consider Abraham. He believed God and it was credit to him as righteousness. Understand then that those who believe are children of Abraham. The scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. So those who have faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. All who rely on observing the law, are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Clearly, no one is justified before God by the law, because the righteousness, the righteous, sorry, will live by faith. The law is not based on faith. On the contrary, the man who does these things will live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for you, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus, so that by faith we might receive the promises of the Spirit. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Thank you, Rawdon. Do keep your Bibles open to Galatians 3. We will work through this passage verse by verse. Let's uh, join in prayer once again. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word that speaks to us of your truth. And so, Lord, what we do lack, do give us. How we must change, please change us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. About five and a half years ago, I had the wonderful privilege and joy of uh, going overseas to Vietnam, where Yvonne grew up, where she was born, and we went back with both sets of parents, which made it for an interesting trip. We got to see where they grew up in Vietnam, and, and that was quite a, an enjoyable time. Now, if you've been to Southeast Asia, you would know what makes Southeast Asia, Southeast Asia, is the shopping and all the bargaining that happens. I mean, there are bargains everywhere. I mean, who doesn't love a bargain? You go to these markets and they sell a T-shirt, you know, after you convert it, $2 for a T-shirt. And you think, no, too much, $1.50. And you haggle and haggle and, and eventually get it for $1.40 after conversion. It's probably not even worth $1.40, but it's a bargain, so you get it. But you see, all around Southeast Asia and, and Vietnam, when we were there, um, the home that we stayed at, the restaurants we visited, the hotels we stayed at, you can't help get this sense that bargaining happens all the time. Not just between people. 
in the markets. But there's this sense that the people in Vietnam, so many of them, were bargaining with their gods. And that's because what you see in almost every building, you see these shrines that are set up to their gods with a plate of fruits and buns and incense. And so it seems like so many people with these shrines that are replaced every day with new fruit, they're bargaining with their God. There's this sense that I'm here to make a cosmic transaction with my God. Bargaining with the gods. I'll burn some incense, I'll give my gods some fruit, and in return I expect health and safety and wealth. There's this sense all over the place, I'll scratch the back of my gods and they'll scratch my back. But if you think about it, that's the sense we get in much of life. It's often how human relationships even function. I'll scratch your back and you scratch my back. Quid pro quo, something for something. I'll do something for you. And I expect something in return. That's often how humans function. But when we come to the God of the Bible, this God, it's very easy for us to think that God works that way as well. That I can, in some sense, bargain with God. I can haggle with God. I scratch God's back and he'll scratch mine. I'll do something for God and he'll bless me. Quid pro quo, something for something. That there is this cosmic transaction that I'm engaging with God all the time. But let me ask you, is that how the God of the Bible functions? Does God need us to scratch his back? In fact, does God need anything from us at all? You see, if anything, it is us who needs all the things from God, life itself. What does God need from us? Well, in a sense, God needs nothing from us. You see, what do we need from God? If you think about the blessings of God, the glory of salvation, what do we need? Well, we need forgiveness of sins. God, please forgive me. Please do not hold to account the things I have done wrong. We need justification, which we've been thinking about in the book of Galatians. Please declare me not guilty when I face you. Declare me innocent so that I may come into your presence. What else do we need from God? The Spirit of God, that God might dwell in us by His Spirit to change us, to conform us into the likeness of Jesus. What else do we need from God? We desire adoption from God, that God might not only bring us close, but bring us in to His eternal family. Sanctification is another thing we need from God. God, do make me more holy, make me more like Jesus day by day. What else do we want from God? We want eternal life from God. God, give me a life that will extend into all eternity. Do not abandon me to the grave. And what else do we want from God? We want the glory of heaven. Please grant me a place in your eternal kingdom. Now, as you look at that list of the blessings of salvation, the things that God has to offer, how does it all become mine? How does it all become yours? Do I, do I scratch God's back and then he'll give me a bit of forgiveness? Do I bargain and haggle with God? You know, God, I'll give you 10% of my income and, and you give me heaven. 
Is it meant to be some cosmic transaction that we're engaging with God? Let me swipe my credit card of, of moral living, of obedience, of church attendance. Is that how it's meant to happen? Well, the answer is no, not at all. How can all of those things be ours, the blessings of salvation? How? By faith alone. In Christ alone. It is not quid pro quo. And that's why when we get to our passage, as we turn to it, have a look with me. Paul was astonished. Chapter 3, verse 1. He was baffled. He was dumbfounded. How could you people get it so wrong? And notice the strong language he uses here. I mean, I like to hear some preacher one day call his church members these words. Talk about being sensitive and being tactful as a minister. But look at verse 1. What does he say? What does he call them? You foolish Galatians. Who has bewitched you? J.B. Phillips, in his translation, he puts it, Oh, you dear idiots of Galatia. Surely you can't be so idiotic. Surely you can't be so idiotic as to think you can scratch God's back as though God needs it. How can you be so idiotic as, as, as though you can bargain with God? And see, Paul doesn't hold back here. You see, the word bewitched is worth reflecting on for a moment. To be bewitched literally means someone has put an evil eye on you as though some sorcerer has cast some spell upon you. And you see, Paul wasn't flippant about his use of words here. He, he was thoughtful. Why did he use such words? Because to get the gospel so wrong, it's as though someone influenced you with an evil eye. Not just those false teachers, but behind them, it was the activity of the evil one himself. And so why did Paul call them? You, you idiots of Galatia, verse 1. Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. For Jesus to be portrayed as crucified means for him to be publicly displayed, on show for everyone to see, presented, proclaimed. It was obvious to all, Jesus died. He was crucified on a cross in human time in history. He was before your eyes. Notice the play on words here. You, you saw it. Who pulled a wool over your eyes? Who cast a spell on you with an evil eye? There, there's a play on words there. And Paul's point was, you look at the cross. You look at the cross. You look at the price paid for your sins. You look at what it cost the Son of God so that you can go free. And for you to think, I can bargain with God still? That I can scratch God's back? I mean, we stand at the foot of the cross and we are all cut down to size. It's the great leveler. John Stott, the great theologian, he said, he said so wonderfully, nothing in history or the universe cuts us down to size like the cross. All of us have inflated views of ourselves. And don't you think that is so true? We all have inflated views of ourselves. 
I think I'm better looking than I am, but Yvonne cuts me down. No, you don't. <laughs> You're not that good at all. I think I'm pretty awesome at, at when, I, when I do the barbecue. Yvonne said, no, you know, you burn the meat. We all have inflated views of ourselves, especially in self-righteousness. Until we have visited a place called Calvary, it is there at the cross we shrink to our true size. And what is the true size of every single living person? Our true size is that we are all filthy, wretched sinners in need of the kindness and mercy of God. I cannot buy the blessings of God, but I receive it freely by faith. God says so, and so I believe so. You see, faith is the act of reaching out with empty hands. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. I reach out with empty hands, and it's like I'm receiving a present. You see, I didn't make the present. I didn't buy the present. I don't earn it. I reach out with empty hands, and I receive it humbly. That is faith. Faith offers nothing. It contributes nothing to the present. And so that's why Paul now, he simply questions them. How do you get the Spirit of God in the first place? When you first believe, when you first came to faith, when you first received all those blessings of salvation, was it based on your achievements or was it based on the achievements of Christ? And so Paul uses pretty simple logic. Look at verses 2 to 4. I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by observing the Lord, that is, by your achievements, or by believing what you heard about the achievements of Christ? Are you so foolish? After beginning with the Spirit, are you now trying to attain your goal by human effort? You see, it's beautiful and simple logic. The way you started your Christian walk is the way you continue your Christian walk. It is by faith. The way you entered into the kingdom of God in the first place and the way you stay in the kingdom of God, it is by faith. You see, we never graduate from the gospel. You know, it's not like the gospel is the diploma and we need to move up to the degree and masters and PhD. Not at all. You never graduate from the gospel. We never move on from Jesus Christ to anything else. Now, that may sound obvious, but it does happen, even amongst Christians. That's why Paul had to say here, who be with you? Quite a number of years ago, a family I knew, they were going to a good evangelical church, preached the gospel, preached the Bible, preached Christ. But eventually this family, I heard, decided to move to a different church. And what I later discovered was that this church was, in fact, like a cult, because Upon the gospel, upon Jesus, they were laid upon rules and laws and regulations. You have to dress this way. This is when you're meant to meet. This is what you're meant to do as a family. So many rules and regulations was like a cult. What will Paul say? Who has bewitched you? We never move on from Jesus to anything else. You see, we don't get the Spirit of God by any of our efforts. Nor does God grant his spirit by any of our efforts. And that's what Paul goes on to say, verse 5. 
Does God give you his spirit and work miracles among you because you observe the law or because you believe what you heard? You see, the gospel is so simple. So simple. You do it or Christ has done it. You, your efforts, your performance, or Christ has done it. It's the difference between do and done. Two letters. That is the difference. And what Paul now does is to hammer home his point. He's speaking to those who, who are causing trouble. You talk about the laws of Moses, well, I am going to trump you because I'm now going to talk about Abraham, the father of us all. And so he turns to Abraham. I mean, how did Abraham, how was he made righteous? How was he justified? How did he become a father of us all? And so Paul, in a sense, he pulls out the trump card and it is a winner. You see, Abraham was declared righteous in Genesis 15, our first reading. What happened in that story? God brought Abraham outside, told Abraham, look up at the stars. See how many stars there are. Well, you'll have as many descendants as there are stars in the sky. What did Abraham do? Now, he was an old man. I'm an old man, 85 years old. Sarah's old. There's no way she's going to give birth now. She's 75. We're old. But when Abraham was shown all the stars in the sky, what did Abraham do? It was beautiful. He simply believed. Though I'm old, there's no way physically possible for Sarah to have a child. He simply believed and God accepted it as enough. Because you have taken me at my word, I'll give you a righteousness you do not have. And that's verse 6. That's what Paul says. The trump card. Consider Abraham. He believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. It was given to him. He didn't have it. It was given to him. And you see, the timing of this was so important because someone would say, well, wasn't Abraham blessed because he was circumcised? Well, the answer is no, because that happened in Genesis 17. That was 14 years afterwards. Or wasn't Abraham blessed because he obeyed all the laws of God? The answer is no, because that happened in Exodus 20, 430 years later. You see, this was his trump card. It's a, a win. It's a smackdown. Abraham's faith was in God's provision, not in his performance. And now Paul makes the point, everyone who shares in that same faith of Abraham is considered a descendant of Abraham. It's not the blood descendants, but the spiritual descendants. It's where we get, you know, those of us who grew up going to Sunday school, is where we get that old Sunday school song from. You know that one? Father Abraham, together now, had many sons. Don't leave me alone. Many sons had Father Abraham. I am one of them and so are you. So let's go praise the Lord. Right hand, left hand and all that stuff. Yeah. Well, that's where that song comes from. Who are the descendants of Abraham? Those who trust in God like Abraham. Like you, like me. I mean, we've got all different nationalities here. I'm an Asian guy. I'm a Gentile. 
but I'm considered part of the people of God. Gentiles are included too. And that's what Paul goes on to say, verses 7 to 9 now. Understand then that those who believe are children of Abraham. The scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. We are part of all those nations so that those who have faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. And so Paul questioned this church, who bewitched you? Who looked upon you with an evil eye? Do you think you can scratch God's back and bargain with God? That all the blessings of God come to you because of your performance? Not at all. It is received with empty hands, and that is faith. I open up my empty hands and I receive it freely. Whereas Paul now goes along with their logic. If you want to live by the law, if you in fact want to live by your performance, if you want to prove to God that you, you're worthy of it, that you can earn it, if I want to live by my performance, but Paul says, well, if you want to, he doesn't beat around the bush. You want to live by your performance? Then be perfect. Not 97% perfect, 100% perfect. Because if you are not perfect, God is not going to look down upon that and think, well, I'm going to turn a blind eye to that 3% of mistakes. I'm not going to think, oh, that's just an honest mistake. Or you're just being human. Paul puts it as it is. You are cursed. You are damned. Because, you see, what the law does is, is that it stands and it points out our faults and our flaws. It's like a curse upon us. You see, the law points out, you have failed here. You may not have committed adultery physically, but you have when you lost it in your heart. The law points out, you've missed the mark here. You may not have murdered anyone but by hating that person, you've murdered that person in your heart. The law points out, you are not perfect here. You make yourself look so kind and gentle, but you're only doing so so that you might receive the praise of men and women. You see, the law is like a curse because it points out the fault. Even if it's 1%, it points it out. It's like a burden. And that's what Paul says, verse 10. All who rely on observing the law are under a curse. For it is written, Curse is everyone who does not continue to do some things. Is that what he says? Everything. Written in the book of the law. Now one, one guy who, who wonderfully described how, how heavy and weighty and burdensome the law was, was Martin Luther. He was, when he was still a young Catholic priest, he really tried to live by the law. He tried to live by the book. If I obey the laws of God, if I do my confessions daily, if I do all my, all my chores, if I screw up the toilets, then, then God must accept me. And so he lived, trying to obey all the laws of God. Now in monastery life, what the priests had to do was that they had to go to the confessional and confess their sins. And so they would go into the box and they would say, Father, I have sinned, hear my confession. And the confessor would ask, well, what do you do? 
well, yesterday I, I coveted my brother Henry's drumstick. He got a bigger piece than my one. I sinned. Or I stayed up too late, passed lights out. I sinned. And the confessor would then say, well, go and say three Hail Marys. Do your penance and you'll be fine. But for Martin Luther, he took it so, so seriously. He took the laws of God so seriously, it weighed upon him like a heavy burden. You see, what he did was he went to the confessional every single day. And he would say, Father, forgive me, for I have sinned. It's been 24 hours since, I've, since my last confession. And he would pick out in the confession box every little tiny sin he committed over the last 24 hours. He didn't want to leave any sin left unconfessed because he thought if they were unconfessed, he would not make it to God. He would not make it to heaven. And so he felt the curse of the law, the enormity of his sins and his inability to satisfy a righteous God. You see, the other brothers in the monastery, they would just take a few minutes in the confession box. You know, I sinned. You know, forgive me and I'll do my Hail Marys. But for Martin Luther, he'll be in that box for two hours, three hours, four hours, trying to recount every sin over the last 24 hours. He did it so often to the point that he was driving his superiors crazy. They were going mad because they had to sit there for those hours to listen to him. It drove one of the confessors so crazy he complained, Brother Martin... Stop this preoccupation with picadillos. If you're going to confess something, make it a real sin. You're probably just in here so that you can escape all your chores. But of course they knew he was earnest. But Martin Luther, he was so anxious about all his sins. He in fact developed digestive difficulties. I mean, he was so weighed down. He said, What can I do to win a gracious God? Oh, my sin, my sin. What shall I do with my sin? He didn't know what to do. He felt the weight of it. But then eventually, Martin Luther, he was encouraged by one to turn to the Scriptures. And what he learned was that the laws of God were not the means of righteousness. You don't look at the laws to become righteous. You don't look to the laws to, to be okay with God. Instead, the law is a mighty hammer, he said, to crush the self-righteousness of human beings. And that's what it did to him. It crushed him. You look to the law, you, you, you just can't help but feel, I have failed. I have fallen short. And so Luther eventually, as he turned back to Scripture, his conversion was when he learnt that the righteous shall live not by the law, but by faith. By faith. And that's what Paul says here. You see, this was an important book for Luther. Look at verses 11 to 12. Paul says, Clearly no one is justified before God by the law, because the righteous will live by faith. The law is not based on faith. On the contrary, the man who does these things will live by them. You see, if anyone at all could make it to God by human performance, by being religious, by obeying the laws, it was this pious monk, 
Martin Luther. In fact, he said, So strictly did I observe the rules of my order that I may say, If ever a monk got to heaven through monkery, I too would have got there. He would have made it if obedience to the law was enough. But of course it wasn't. There is no bargaining with God. There is no trying to scratch God's back as though we can earn anything from God, as though we have anything to offer to God. And so when the turning point happened for Martin Luther, he described his conversion this way. I began to understand that the righteousness of God is that by which the righteous lives by a gift of God, namely by faith. Here I felt that I was altogether born again and had entered paradise itself through open gates. It's a beautiful description of his conversion. You see, for Martin Luther, he hated the words, the righteousness of God. He was trying to be righteous. He was trying to meet God's standard of righteousness. It was overbearing. It was like a curse upon him. But then what happened at his conversion was that it became the sweetest words of all. Because the righteousness of God is not what, what he did, but it was what God graciously and freely provides. And that was for him the gates to paradise. It was for him the gates to paradise. And so we have to ask the question, have you, I mean, you know your own heart, have you entered through the gates of paradise? Because if you think, I get there by my performance, I get there by my religious obedience, my religious duties, then the truth is you haven't. You're still outside of paradise. Now, for, for those of us who have come from, I mean, Martin Luther and the Reformation, huge, important story. If you want to read more about it, it is worth reading. There's this book I would recommend, Nothing in My Hand I Bring, Understanding the Difference Between, between Roman Catholics and Protestant Beliefs. It's written by uh, a, a Maltese Catholic growing up, Ray Galea, and he became a Christian. And so, wonderful book that I recommend. Well, well, let's come back to this passage. The only way to escape the curse is if someone else takes it. As simple as that. There's the curse of the law. How do you escape it? Well, if someone else takes it for you. And there is only one who is worthy enough to take it, and that is Jesus Christ himself. And that's how Paul ends this passage. It is with the substitution of Jesus for us, verses 13 to 14. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by being, be, becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus, so that by faith we might receive freely with empty hands the promise of the Spirit. You see, if there is to be any cosmic transaction at all, it's not between us and God. It was the transaction at the cross. Those little shrines with fruits and incense does nothing. 
but it was at the cross. Just like that old hymn, Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. Jesus became a curse. On a tree, on a cross, so that we who by faith we will escape that curse of God. And so how do we today receive all those wonderful blessings of salvation? Forgiveness, justification, adoption, a cosmic transaction between us and God? Is that how we enter into paradise? You see, the truth of this passage is not a difficult one. It is so simple, but yet so radical. It is all of Christ and none of me. It is a free gift that I receive with empty hands by faith. And so amongst us this morning, I suspect there are those amongst us who have not yet received all the blessings of salvation. We have not yet entered into or through the gates of paradise. And we may be sitting here and we have no assurance at all. If I were to die tonight, what's the percentage of my confidence that I will enter through the gates of paradise? What's the confidence? If we have no answer, now there could be many reasons for that. You may have questions, you may have doubts, you've got questions to ask. Well, we advertise that food for thought conversation, even in come to that. But you see, if you understand the gospel already, it's simple, it's free. Just reach out your empty hands to receive it by faith. If you understand it already, then you have to ask yourself, what are you waiting for? You see, you don't have to get your life in order. Often we have to think, we like to think, I have to get my life in order before I do business with God. Not at all. God doesn't work that way. We don't get our life in order. In fact, how can we get our life in order? Apart from some good seasons of life. In the story of Zacchaeus, on the tree, up on the tree, Jesus didn't say, I'm going to come to your house only once your life is in order. Not at all. I'll come to your house today. But what it takes is humble faith. And I suspect that is where the problem lies. Because it's too unbelievable. We don't work that way as humans. I scratch your back, you scratch mine, but it doesn't work that way with God. The best thing in the entire universe is completely and utterly free. And so, Lord, are you saying to me, you will forget my sins freely? I don't have to earn it? God says, yes. Are you saying, Lord, that I don't need to pay you back when I get to heaven? Well, God says, yes. Are you saying, Lord, that you don't need me to be perfect to enjoy your loving embrace for all eternity? Well, God says, yes. Just look to the cross. It cuts us down to our true size. And that is, I'm a sinner in need of mercy. And if I cry, Lord, have mercy on me, God will. And so if that is you, maybe today's that day. What are you waiting for? But for those of us who have already received the gospel by faith, it's like the treasure of great price. There is nothing in, at all in our entire life that will blow our minds like what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. And we remember our absolute unworthiness of it all. 
I mean, just think about this past week. All the good stuff you did. All the ways you were kind and patient and nice. Have a think. All the stuff, just count them. Some of us might be able to count them on one hand or two hands. Or Now, add that all together. Do you think that is worthy of the death of Jesus? Not one bit. Not one bit. But what a privilege it is that God has bestowed upon us. We started by faith, we continue in faith. We started with Jesus, we continue with Jesus. We started with the Holy Spirit, we continue with the Spirit of God who resources us and equips us. Anything else, we will be, like Paul says, bewitched. And so for us who have already received it by faith, each time we sin, each time we feel the weight of guilt, each time we might make a mess of life, do we then think, I need to start working harder? I need to start relying on my own willpower to get myself back into God's good books? No, not at all. We remember this passage. There is no quid pro quo with God, not something for something. It is absolutely everything from God and nothing from us. And as the burden and the weight of a lifetime of sin is placed at the foot of the cross, and when Jesus said, it is finished, he meant it. Because at the cross, that was the only worthy cosmic transaction on our behalf. That's the wonderful, glory, simplicity of the gospel. And isn't the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ so worthy of praise because of that? Let's pray. We do praise you, the Father and Lord of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you have bestowed upon us such wonderful glories of salvation, justification and adoption, and the glory to come. All we need to do is to open up our hands in humble faith and to receive it freely. Not that we can ever earn it or work for it, but we thank you that you have done so in Jesus for us. And so we do pray for those amongst us who have yet to receive it. Move their hearts, Lord. Humble their hearts to receive it by faith. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.